Welcome to this special Conversations Shelter in Place episode of the Orbital Perspective Podcast. Where we dolly zoom out to a perspective where upcoming megatrends become visible. Every day, it is more and more apparent that we are in the midst of the great transition. Everything is changing rapidly. The fundamentals of business, government, and society are being rewritten almost on a daily basis. We are truly living during a time where the riskiest course of action is to stay the course. The most hazardous path is to take the tried and true. We are also living during a time where it is becoming more and more apparent that the status quo is not working. At least it's not working for everyone. And until the status quo is working for everyone, we will do nothing more than slap temporary band-aids on our problems and our challenges. We are presently dealing with crisis after crisis. But these crises can serve as a wake-up call. They can be our call to action to incorporate the changes necessary to make us all more resilient and better equipped to deal with the future crises that will undoubtedly come our way. The Orbital Perspective is all about transcending the divisive walls that separate us and embracing the awe and wonder of our shared humanity. What all the guests on the Orbital Perspective podcast have in common is they are all able to see things from a slightly different perspective. And when we look at issues from different perspectives, we see things in stereoscopic vision. Multiple perspectives allow us to see the depth of a situation below the two-dimensional us-versus-them surface. The other thing all our guests have in common is they are all proof that you don't have to be in orbit to have the orbital perspective. Now, this is not an interview, and it's also not just a conversation between two friends. It's a conversation amongst all of us. If you're listening live, please post your questions and your comments so that we can bring you into the conversation. And if you're listening to the recorded conversation, still please join in with your comments and questions and be a part of this evolving community. Thank you for being here and being a part of this conversation from the Orbital Perspective. T-minus 17 seconds and counting. 15, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. Go for main engine start. Main engine start. 2, 1, Booster ignition and liftoff of the Space Shuttle Discovery, returning to the space station, paving the way for future missions beyond. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Conversation Sheltered in Place. I hope this episode finds everybody healthy and safe uh, and doing the best they can to navigate the crisis known as, as 2020. And, you know, we... We're all paying a, a pretty steep price. Uh, there's a there's a lot of folks uh, suffering greatly. There's a lot of folks that are affected in one way or the other. Uh, but I think everybody is affected economically in, in some respects. And so uh, we're going to have a great discussion today about uh, ways that businesses can navigate 2020 um, and not only navigate it, but how we can come out the other side stronger uh, than ever. How how businesses can thrive in the post-COVID-19 world. And uh, we'll, we'll talk a lot about uh, what the, the post-COVID-19 
world looks like. I'm really excited to have Daniel Epstein as as my guest. Uh, Daniel's a good friend um, and now a neighbor uh, here in Boulder. Uh, and uh, just this this week, we did a, a hike along Boulder Creek, um, and it was a it was a beautiful day. And uh, you know, it's a beautiful setting uh, here in the mountains. And uh, we had a really really wonderful conversation. And I know that uh, everybody's going to enjoy a continuation of, of that conversation. Uh, but if you don't know who Daniel is, uh, I'll just uh, cover his bio real quick. Uh, Daniel's unfettered belief in entrepreneurs led him to found and become the CEO of Unreasonable Group, an organization dedicated to supporting an international fellowship for growth stage entrepreneurs who are profitably solving global issues. Today, Unreasonable actively supports over 200 growth stage CEOs, channels exclusive deal flow to hundreds of investors and investment funds, and partners with multinational brands and institutions to discover profit in solving global challenges. Recently, Daniel was named by Fortune Magazine as one of the world's 50 greatest leaders along the side, alongside the likes of Bill Gates and Tim Cook. Daniel was also awarded Inc. Magazine's 30 Under 30 Entrepreneur, and Forbes identified him as one of the top 30 most impactful entrepreneurs. He also received the prestigious Entrepreneur of the World Award along with Richard Branson and the president of Liberia at the Global Entrepreneurship Forum. Beyond his capacities at Unreasonable, Daniel is a frequent keynote speaker, moderator, thought leader, and advisor. And so please help me welcome to Conversation Shelter in Place, Daniel Epstein. Hey, Daniel. It's good to be here with you, Ron. That, that introduction is way too generous. And uh, <laughs> I need to actually, I need to update the, the 30 under 30. I'm almost 35. I got to stop taking credit for that. <laughs> well, maybe you'll be 35 under 30. I mean, 3535. I mean, <laughs> so um, before we get into this conversation, um, I want to remind everybody: it's not a, just a conversation between two two folks, uh, two people. It's it's a conversation amongst all of us. So uh, I see people tuning in and and joining. So uh, give us your questions, give us your comments, uh, let us know what you're thinking. Uh, we want you uh, to be a part of this conversation. So Daniel, maybe to start off, yeah. Uh, Tell us about Unreasonable, Unreasonable Group, and, and, and maybe the story of how you came to, to found the organization. Yeah, it's great. Uh, it's a great question to start off with. I and also just want to say, I'm Ron. I am um, grateful for our friendship, and I'm so happy that you moved to Boulder. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the biggest thing. We're lucky to have you. I, I mean, Unreasonable. So uh, we're, we're a hard organization to describe. I am, but uh, anytime I introduce Unreasonable, I'd, li I'd like to start with uh, our admitted biases and assumptions. I am, and the first one is a, a truly a diehard belief that entrepreneurs are well positioned, if not best positioned, to solve some of the toughest challenges of our time. Um, yeah, as an organization, we're entrepreneur centric uh, to a fault, <laughs> and we're proud of it, right? I. And so that you know, our foundational reason for existence is to support entrepreneurs trying to solve uh, society or the environment's toughest challenges, um, and to help them do that at scale. Um, now, how we go about that, you know, what's the tool in our tool belt? It's really community. I um, like yes, uh, we help uh, make introductions to investment funds and investors, and we try to move capital. Um, and drive more resources into these entrepreneurs. But the the greatest asset I think that we I. Um, really offer to the Unreasonable Fellows is a, is a community that has their back, 
I, you know, being, being a CEO at, at any point in time, I can oftentimes be a very lonely job. I let alone being an entrepreneur and CEO of a company that's trying to do something that nobody's ever done before. I, um, I, and so we really exist to uh, drive a community of support and resources into these companies. I, in terms of where this all came from, I, to, to your question, I, you know, the genesis of a reasonable, I'm, if I'm really honest, in a lot of ways, it was selfish. I am, and it was selfish in maybe in a good sense of the word, but it was, it was absolutely selfish. I, I was a young entrepreneur at, out of the University of Colorado in Boulder. I'm still, still a student. I, and I, when I was finishing up my first semester, I was, I was studying philosophy at the time. I, I had one moment with my journal one evening I, that kind of put me on this path. I and I was trying to come up with all these different business ideas or business models, and nothing's getting me excited, right? I'm in essence, I know I want to be an entrepreneur, but I have no idea what I want to do. I and I realized in hindsight, you know, I was asking myself the wrong question, which is what do you want to do versus why? I and so 18, I journal, put my philosopher's hat on, and I asked myself, I said, well, if I can't come up with a you know a really clear business that's pulling me, I'm maybe I should just look at entrepreneurship in general and ask the question, which is what, what do all entrepreneurs have in common? And I wrote on one line in my journal, I said, all entrepreneurs design solutions to problem sets. I wrote on the second line, well, I can choose the nature of the problem sets I want to solve. And I wrote on the third line, I'm only going to work on problem sets worthy of my life's work. I'm 18, totally naive. I mean, I still am <laughs> in that sense, uh, naive. Uh, but the one thing I knew about entrepreneurship, kind of to that point earlier, is that it's hard. Right. I, you know, statistics in the U.S., one out of 10 businesses five years after being founded don't exist or nine out of 10. Sorry, don't exist. Only one do or does. So you have a 10 percent kind of five year survival rate for startups. I, and I figured at that point in time, if I'm going to leverage my relationships, my sleep, my reputation, you know, my equity into starting a company as a young entrepreneur, why not start a company that if if we succeed, that we bend history in the right direction? Um, because of the problems that we chose to solve. And so kind of long story short, I, I launched three startups in university um, here in Boulder. Um, you know, all I, all experiments, you know, all, all with good friends. I And and even still, it, towards the end of my university um, tenure, I, yeah, I felt a little bit like a misfit. I didn't know who to hang out with. I And what I mean by that is, you know, I was trying to launch companies that were for-profit companies trying to solve nonprofit problems, if, if we're going to generalize. And uh, I just didn't know who to hang out with. I'd go to the nonprofit community. I figured, well, these have got to be my people. We care about solving the same problems. Um, in a lot of ways, I'm, you know, I've actually, actually resonated a lot more with the nonprofit community, but I was a misfit because I'm a capitalist. I, not that I believe greed is good. I think it's bad. Uh, but I believe profits are best driver for ingenuity and markets for scale. So if we're going to solve societal issues at global scale, I think it has to be profitable. I'm, I, and so then I went to the private sector thinking, well, then these have got to be my people. I'm, and I was a total misfit there uh, because for me, profit's just a tool. It's not an end. It's just a means. And, and the end goal is to have as much impact as possible with as much scale as possible. And so genesis of unreasonable, you know, feeling like a misfit. I, between these two worlds, I wanted to seek refuge amongst fellow misfits. You, pe people like yourself, Ron, <laughs> who are, in essence, uh, you know, I would categorize uh, uh, this group of misfits as 
almost kind of foolhardy enough to believe we can change the world, but so hell-bent and so determined that we won't stop of anything short of that, which means, honestly, we're, we're never going to stop. That's, that's uh, a little bit That's a little bit unreasonable, don't you think? I think, well, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, at the end of the day, like my, my hope with what we're what we're trying to do at Unreasonable is, is to show what at least I believe, which is actually the types of companies that we support, they're the only reasonable businesses out there, right? right? If, if you're gonna dedicate your life's work towards starting a company that solves problems, you know, why not go after the most meaningful problems in the market? Um, what we're also starting to see is that um, the market financially uh, is you know translating that value right the just over 200 companies we support they've raised over five billion dollars um, in uh, in equity financing um, much more important than that they're impacting the lives of over 500 million people in a measurable way right. uh, but i think markets are starting to appreciate uh that there's more value in solving more important problems as well um, i'll stop i'll stop blabbering that's too much <laughs> no 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 that, that's that's great um we're at a really interesting point in history. It's a really, it's a really interesting point in history to be a part of Unreasonable Group too. And you, you know, it's it's interesting. Back in late December, early January, I was finishing up the manuscript of of my new book called Floating in Darkness. And what what I was talking about in wrapping up that manuscript was, I, I could just sense that we were at a really critical inflection point in the world. Um, what I was calling the Great Transition, um, and what what was and is very very clear and and you touched on this is that business enterprise has the incredible power it's probably the most powerful force on the planet and it has the incredible power to either destroy our planet yeah. or or heal our planet um yeah. destroy our planet but by hanging on to the old mindset winner take all you know uh, conquest and competition and at all costs and profit maximization at all costs resource resource exploitation at all costs yeah. um, or it could it can embrace a new mindset in, yeah. a, in, a, in a restorative economy you know economy is not a bad capitalism is not a bad word and, and economy is not a bad word um, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that you can't have infinite growth on a planet with finite resources it's yeah. just there's a crash if you if you continue on that trajectory, uh, a crash comes sooner or later. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you talked about how 90% of the businesses uh, fail. A lot of those businesses, even entrenched businesses, even successful entrenched businesses fail when they fail to recognize megatrends that are coming. Yeah. And we're living, I, I don't have to tell you, we're living in such a dynamic uh, time right now. And there's so many trends coming and there's so many examples, you know, look at Kodak, right? It didn't see the mega trend of digital cameras, even though it invented digital, yeah, <laughs> totally. you know, yeah, blockbuster, yeah. not seeing streaming coming down the line. And so there are some huge mega trends coming right now. Uh, what, what kind of advice can you give folks? You know, if, if nine out of 10 businesses are failing before a pandemic, you know, I don't know what the number is now. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot, of, there's a lot of, uh, you know, retailers, there's a lot of businesses that are particularly hard hit. Um, so what, what kind of what kind of advice would you give folks that are trying to navigate this that from a business point of view? Oh, I uh, hard, hard question to answer. I am, um, but it's a really important one. I am um, a, a couple of quick thoughts. Just one. Um, I disagree with you. I'm, um, I think business is a tool. And uh, if we liken it to a hammer, if we play with that analogy, it can be used to build or destroy a house. I am. Okay. Um, and it, I think historically business has largely been used to take down the house. 
right? It's part of the reason why we're in the situation that we are with mass extinction, with uh, unbelievable inequity in terms of uh, wealth, I uh, and with a huge amount of exploitation and extraction, right? Uh, but uh, you can use that same tool. I am, to, I think, build something that's much more just, much more regenerative. Um, to your point, I, I mean, advice. Uh, so I never share advice. That's the first thing. Um, I don't believe in it. Um, Not good advice. <laughs> but I will share perspectives. <laughs> I happily share perspectives. Um, how, how do we survive in this era? I, although I, th- I think the first thing is it's just it's, it's really hard. I, I, I think that 2020 is I, I am globally one of the toughest years that we faced. I think that this is a, I think it's, a, and this isn't hyperbolic. I think that this year will define the rest of this century. Uh, and thereby um, potentially further than that. I'm, yeah, of course. So, how to survive the business? I'm, golly. Well, I, th- I think that uh, a lot of our companies within the reasonable portfolio that are really thriving. I'm uh, the reason they're really thriving uh, is because they were able to pivot quickly, right? I so if if you are a small company or if you are an entrepreneurial led business, the good news is that you have an unfair advantage. Right, the large multinationals and the large established companies—they're rooted in their ways and they're dependent on kind of their current business models. It's very hard for them to quickly pivot. Right? Uh, whereas a smaller companies, um, we can do it much more easily. We can be much more agile. But I think the biggest advice or perspective I would share is that I'm, you know, what got you here may not get you to where you need to go next. I had, I think the companies that are really thriving uh, within the Unreasonable Fellowship are those that. Um, once they saw these trends coming, uh, they immediately pivoted their businesses uh, to tackle them. Yeah, I, I could give you a, a bunch of examples, but um, one that just comes to mind, uh, we support a company called Thread. I, they I, um, provide jobs for a couple thousand folks down in Haiti. Um, and what they're operating as the intersection of uh, plastic pollution uh, and, and job creation. I, and they uh, um, are able to create these jobs, significantly increase income, and uh, they're um, taking trash off the streets or out of the waterways of Haiti. Um, plastic, they're able to convert that then into a thread material, and they sell that into big brands, um, uh, some of the biggest ones um, out there. Uh, when COVID hit, uh, they realized that uh, they had a massive opportunity to become a part of the solution around PPE. Uh, and the production there. And they were very worried that they were going to have to let go a number of the workforce, both in Haiti and in Pittsburgh. Um, They retooled their entire factory. They've contributed to creating about 100 more jobs in Pittsburgh since then. And they stopped, in essence, producing that thread for T-shirts, and they switched the entire supply chain to PPE. Uh, Not only are are they doing a, a massive service, uh, in society with that work, um, they're creating more jobs, but they're flourishing as a company. Uh, yeah. and so it's a lot harder for big organizations to do that. And I think that's where entrepreneurs have the advantage. But uh, I'm, that also takes a, a lot of humility. Uh, and there's countless examples across across the fellowship. I, it takes a lot of humility um, to, you know, the plans that you had for this year, for the next three years, whatever that might be, to say, hey, you know what, we, we actually got to shift this. We need to rise the occasion. We need to become a part of the solution. Uh, and our old business model may not work. Um, and we're going through a lot of those pivots ourselves. 
at a reasonable, right? Uh, our primary kind of product in the market are these multi-week international sleepovers. <laughs> in essence, we just try to drive as much value as possible uh, into the entrepreneurs that we support. Um, I, we're probably not doing those for at least another year. We had to cancel all of those programs. Um, and I move everything virtually. Um, but in that, we're finding a magnificent opportunity. Uh, we're realizing we can actually have more impact. We can be more effective to the companies we support. Um, and, and we could do it uh, in a more uh, kind of globally uh, aware way, because in the past, we had to bring everybody together physically. You know, if you could run it virtually, um, you can be anywhere in the world. Uh, we can support entrepreneurs anywhere in the world. So, like, the con uh, like the conversation we're having right now. Yeah, exactly. 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 So yeah, I'd say agility and humility are the two biggest things. I'm and I, I'm. You know, the the other aspect, and I think a lot of companies are struggling, ours included. I'm is I think the most important asset that any entrepreneur has is the culture, I uh, within their organization within their team. I and I I've found I right now just being CEO of Reasonable that um, I need to triple down on the investment. Uh, that it takes to ensure um, that our culture is thriving because um, it's harder in a remote world and in an intense world uh, and a world with so much uncertainty. Um, so that'd be advice to myself uh, as well, uh, which is um, you know, realize uh, I, that the best investment I can make is into the team and, and prioritize more time than I normally would need to there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, a lot of things have changed. I mean, we're having this we're having this conversation virtually, right? Yeah, and, and I have to point out that our hike along Boulder Creek was yeah. socially distanced with PPE and everything yeah. else. So, yeah. so so it's a new world. But you touched on a number of really interesting things, and you know, one of them is the 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 ability for companies to be nimble and flexible. And um, but you, you need in order to do that, you have to have some vision, right? You need to be able to recognize those mega trends that are, that are coming. Uh, you know, the next wave of whatever that mega trend is. And, and um, you know, you, you mentioned a couple of, of the ways that you can have that vision. Uh, you know, humility is, is a big one. You don't, if you already have all the answers, you're not looking for, <laughs> you know, yeah. you're, not, you're not looking for anything. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things that I think, one of the mega trends that I think is coming is a, a complete remake of what the definition of the word business is in the first place. Mm -hmm. So right now, businesses are kind of seen as as independent entities that kind of operate in isolation. I mean, they have some interaction with other businesses, but you know their their primary focus is on shareholder value and you know you know competition at all costs and everything. I I see a, a growing trend where businesses more and more will not be seen as independent ent entities, but they'll be seen as interdependent nodes in a fabric of prosperity. Okay. So where they're, uh, they're a, a functioning cell in the overarching uh, body yeah. and businesses have to, businesses that I, that I think are gonna survive this next mega trend are gonna be the businesses that exist first and foremost to serve the needs of civilization without causing any harm, uh, that are doing a net positive to the environment, that practice uh, you know, radical transparency and openness, uh, profound collaboration. They, they yeah. have long-term thinking. They're not into you know, solely looking at the next shareholder report, but they're, lo they're looking for a, a long-term strategy. And I think those companies that fail to see that mega trend coming are going to be in big trouble. Um, yeah. 
What are your What are your thoughts on that? On if, if yeah. you agree with that mega trend or, or any other mega trends that you see coming? I definitely agree. Uh, I'll, I'll actually, I'll, but I'll, I'll use an analogy uh, that I, I, you know, I think really speaks to me and some of the work of the companies that we support. Uh, so, I, you know, there's a lot of talk about businesses can I, do well by doing good now. Uh, our belief is that if you look at a long-term view, uh, the businesses that will outperform the market uh, are the businesses that maximize the amount of good that they're doing in the world, to your point. Um, and I, a, a place uh, where I seek some uh, inspiration I, you know, always is, is in nature. I, and I was actually I, one of the very first Unreasonable Institute fellows. His name is Dan Rosen. He was on our board for a while as well as a good friend. Him and I were hiking through the redwoods a couple of years ago. And we're looking around at these trees and, you know, redwoods, tallest trees in the world. Um, they can stand for uh, 2000 years, uh, the older ones, 400 feet high. And they're on these rugged coastlines in Northern California where there's earthquakes, where there's fires, where there's unbelievable windstorms, you know, everything of the sort. And we were looking at these trees, started to ask ourselves, like, how is it that these are the, the titans of the force, right? What makes them stand so tall? It must be the root system. That was kind of the takeaway. When we got back to the car, Googled it, and you know, I figured that the roots of a redwood must run 100 feet deep. Like if they're going to stand 400 feet high for 2,000 years, and, and in reality, the average depth of a 400-year-old, uh, depth of roots for a 400-year-old, uh, sorry, 2,000-year-old 400-foot high redwood is eight feet uh, in terms of depth. Uh, now, the key... Uh, to why they can stand and last so long is the roots go out and they go out about 150 feet in all directions and they interlock their roots amongst each other. And that's why redwoods stand in groves, right? They, they stand tall together. I, and, and I believe that, it, I think it's a beautiful analogy for what you're describing in terms of which businesses will be the future titans of industry. It's the companies that one are regenerative for the environments that they operate within, right? You can have 200 species living on top of a redwood. Um, uh, and two, it's those that are, you know, have that humility and that collaborative nature uh, to be able to hold on to each other and to be able to share that information and support one another. I, and so I, I completely agree. Uh, I think I think nature is a beautiful case study. Mm -hmm. um, and to your point too, it's it's not about thinking about you know the next five years or the next two years, or especially not the next quarterly report. It's how do we build companies that last centuries? And right. the reason they'll last centuries is because everything in the ecosystem that they impact is better off because they exist. Um, and the reason they'll last centuries is because they collaborate with one another. Uh, so I totally totally agree with you, and I think it's core. It's core where business needs to go, but it's core to you know my own belief around around business as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that the successful companies of today and tomorrow are going to be those companies that operate with the realities of the real world, and the realities of the real world are that we live in a in a hyper interdependent uh, world where everything affects everything else, yeah. and you can't operate. You just cannot operate in a vacuum, and and the rocket fuel for business, as you well know, is finance, right? So here's Thomas Delora uh, says, uh, combine this thought with private equity, which is a, a greedier kind of, of shareholder. So, so I guess, I think it was 1917, there was a Supreme Court ruling, uh, Ford versus Dodge, <laughs> that, uh, that, you know, Ford wanted to increase the wages of his, his workforce. And uh, the Dodge brothers basically said, uh, if you do that, you're stealing money from us as, as major shareholders. And so, and they won that 
decision. And so um, CEOs are legally bound right now in the U.S. to um, increase increase shareholder value. Right. So um, how do we how do we get around that? How do we make, uh, you know, capital not only patient, but but benevolent (laughs) benefit to the society? Great question. I am. Uh, there's a couple angles to that. Uh, one, whoever commented on private equity, um, greeter kind of shareholder, it, it absolutely can be. I am, and un- unfortunately, uh, to Thomas's point here, um, the the incentive structures are not great when it comes to venture capital and private equity because the timelines are extremely short, right? Uh, if they're if typically in a traditional fund, if you're accepting an investment, they're expecting a liquidity event where that you go public or sell the company in three to five years. Um, that is the opposite of what we're talking about when we're looking at the Redwoods um, for inspiration. I, I think you know, the perspective I would share with any entrepreneur, anybody who's raising capital, is know who uh, is, is backing you if you're raising capital and know what their pressures are um, because that changes everything. There is a lot of patient capital out there. There are a lot of phenomenal investment funds and family offices and individual investors um, who have much longer term horizons. I, I'm, but uh, it's critical to know what pressures they have. I, and so I would always ask any investor, if I ever took money from any, I would be, you know, what, what's your expectations? Not just in terms of return amount, but in terms of timeline. And where does that pressure come from? And what are your incentive structures? And to uh, take that very seriously. I, um, you know, before accepting any capital, I think our public markets, uh, it doesn't work, right? If, if you have to report on quarterly earnings uh, and you have to hit those numbers um, or else you'll get punished uh, by the markets, then of course that produces short-term behavior and it has to. Uh, and so I, I think the system uh, doesn't work uh, in its current function. It's well, actually, that's not accurate. The system works in terms of how it was designed to work, but we need to rethink it. I am, especially <laughs> if we want to think multi-generational, especially right. if we want to be oriented around sustainability. Yeah, especially if you want companies to be able to do the right thing for the right reasons in the right way. Um, if you're a public company right now, that's extremely hard, extremely hard. Uh, and if you're accepting private equity and it's on a short-term timeline, um, because that fund has to because of how it was designed, yeah, it's going to be extremely hard. I am, so yeah, anytime we're talking with, unreasonable fellows, the entrepreneurs we support about this, who just say, you know, go in with eyes really open um, because wherever you accept capital from, they'll put you on a path. And there, once again, there are amazing funders out there um, who have a very different lens on investment. And I see it as, you know, triple bottom line or double bottom line, uh, patient capital. Um, but I, I'm the more traditional funders, that's, that's tougher. Yeah. I mean, that, I think it's it that is true not only on a on a corporate scale, it's true on a national scale too, because yeah. because it's really it's that's really a good observation on you know and advice. I know you don't give advice, but I, I, I took it as advice <laughs> to look at what the pressures are on potential funders, right? Because what they're pre- what they're being pressured uh, to evaluate is what they're pressured on measuring, and what we measure is what we put our focus on. Yeah. And so, if you look at it from a national point of view, what we measure is GNP, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, we are looking at how much does how much do we as a nation produce in, as far as goods and services, and every year it has to increase forever. If it doesn't increase, then, yeah. then we're failing. 
right? Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> which which drives a lot of things. It drives yeah. companies to make products that don't last. Yeah. Uh, that you know, planned obsolescence. It, it it drives us to waste. It drives us to not be sustainable. And yeah. so you know, one of the things we need to do is is measure, you know, what what we look at what we measure. And so uh, Susanna says, does this mean that Silicon Valley approach getting venture capital funding for startup ideas is going to vanish? So good question. That is a good question. So, yeah. I, I mean, I think I think you already addressed it, right? I mean, you need to know what the, the pressures are. And I think um, this is, uh, you know, I don't think that that big change is going to come through, you know, voluntary measures by big co companies. I don't think it's going to come through, leg you know, new legis prescriptive legislation. I don't think it's going to. I think it's going to come in with a with the with the whisper of of a billion, the force of a billion feathers, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to come through collective action of consumers who really drive things yeah. to say, I refuse to do business with with a company that doesn't. Uh, isn't transparent, isn't open, isn't isn't uh, positive for the environment, um, and I think that's that's going to happen. And then investors will follow suit. I mean, they're going to lag. Uh, yeah. They're going to lag this equation. They're they're not going to change their 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 tune. And you know, the issue I think there's a lot of issues, but one of the main issues is the short term focus on you know we need 10x and we did it in three years, yeah. you know, yeah. or whatever that is, and that forces us to do really stupid stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think, will the venture capital model vanish? No. Uh, it is well geared for some types of companies. Um, in general, I do, I do I believe like there'll be a very different model for financing startups moving forward? A absolutely. I think venture capital will still exist, um, but it won't have uh, the uh, lure and kind of power that it does right now. Uh, and, and to Ron's point, actually, if if consumer demand changes, the whole thing changes, right? Uh, you know, one, one of my favorite companies, I actually just got uh, a hat from them. It's a Canadian hat company called Tilly. Uh, you know, they guarantee their hats for life. If anything ever happens to it, they'll repair it or they'll give you a new one. That is not a venture-backed business, <laughs> um, to be really clear, right? I am, but you know, they want their hats to last a hundred years. That's kind of their their hallmark kind of claim to fame. I'm, and and there are still opportunities for investors to be able to support those kinds of companies too. But it's not the you know, let's pump a ton of money into this and try to maximize its growth in a three-year period and then sell it. It might look like, hey, you know, there's amazing opportunity to. Uh, you know, so solar is a great example. If you if you really want to uh, scale the distribution of solar, you really need debt. You need project finance, right? Uh, that's a very different thing. And so I think we're seeing it across our entrepreneurs. Um, those with really advanced technologies oftentimes uh, are forced to raise equity. Um, but I, what is much more attractive uh, is debt, is project finance, I'm, as well as, of course, revenue, <laughs> which we can't forget, right? The best kind of funding you could ever have is revenue because it means you've created something of value that people want to purchase. Uh, and we're seeing more and more companies uh, who, who aren't or haven't even taken investment or are growing in that, in that direction. I'm, so I think it will still be around, but I think it's uh, uh, venture capital is, is having a really great reckoning. I'm, and I and and I think we'll see new, much more. I uh, we'll see new forms of investment that become much more popular in the next couple of years that have a different incentive structure that isn't so short term.
Yeah. I mean, you already mentioned that unreasonable group is, is all about community, right? And so if you build community, you build the structure to have a force of a billion feathers, right? You have, you have this structure. I, and I truly believe that we are in the midst of the great transition. And we, you know, we, we talked about this too at <laughs> walking along Boulder Creek, and that's uh, what normal closed uh, closed ecosystem population graphs look like. That yeah. that the, the the population stays for I guess I got to do it this way since I'm backwards. <laughs> that the population stays flat for for a long time, and then it then it takes off exponentially, and then one of two things happen: it either comes crashing back down or or yeah. reaches equilibrium, right? Yeah. And so the the human population of Earth has remained flat for you know hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, and then it took off, you know, in the late 1800s, you know, right as the as the industrial revolution started, and we are right at the inflection point where that rate of acceleration is slowing down, and yep. now this whole mindset that got us to this point, this this whole mindset of unfettered capitalism of yep. of resource exploitation and profit maximization of all of all of, at all costs, at exploitation at all costs, just to get the, the bottom line. That that's what brought us here. That was the that was the first stage of our rocket, right? Yep. We can't get we can't get to orbit with the weight of the first stage. We have to jettison the first stage. Totally. It's not to jettison the first stage. And the yeah. second stage, which will allow us to go to equilibrium and not come crashing back down, is to enter into a new human epoch. We need to get rid of the old human epoch that that yeah. did all those things that were two dimensional. Uh, us versus them, and we need to start thinking long term. We need to start thinking uh, hyper interdependent, and uh, and work from there. And I, I think you know you guys are on the, the exact right spot of of trying to think of things in in ways of community, of long term community, of building long term relationships, yeah. of thinking multi generational, um, etc. So, what are your yeah. thoughts on the great transition? Yeah, I think we're in the middle of it. <laughs> I, I, I think the trends, like that's what I said earlier, I think 2020 is a defining year and I don't I don't want to be sound hyperbolic about it because I often can sound hyperbolic, but I really do think this year uh, matters. Uh, and what we do out of this challenge is get, I do believe, shape the rest of the next century. Uh, so I do believe we're in a great transition. I, 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 saw, hey, I saw a couple of comments come through. It's just one of them. I am... Um, from Ron Rosano, I specifically talked about Patagonia and how they guarantee their products for life and that Patagonia is privately owned. Uh, you know, the story, Yvonne Chouinard, who um, started Patagonia, he did take the public, he did, he did take Patagonia public at one point, but then he bought it back because he realized that in the public markets, he wasn't able to do the right thing for the right reasons in essence. I mean, same, same is true with, you know, Richard Branson and Virgin took it public, bought it back. Um, and I, and I think that's because it's so hard to, I, uh, yeah, do the right thing for the right reasons when you have to report on quarterly earnings. Um, uh, but I do agree. Patagonia is, is a pretty amazing example of a, a company who's trying to do the, the right thing there. Um, I, I'm sorry, Ron, did I just, I just totally, sidetracked our conversation no 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 not at all <laughs> but it's, but it, uh, right. and i was like that's true it's true a different a different ron here i'll pop this up there um yeah. uh, what are your thoughts on how unconventional businesses or nonprofits, such as museums that are generally required to be 90 percent brick and mortar can remain viable or even thrive in the time of covid um one third one third of the museums won't survive so so i, I will say that that that's a, a remarkably hard reality that we're in right now and 
and I don't want to um, pretend like I know the answer on that one, um, Ron Sparkman. I'm, so I, don't, I actually don't have a clear clear response to that. I am, it's hard right now uh, to have a brick and mortar uh, anything, uh, let alone uh, you know, something along the lines of a museum, I'm, uh, especially when your you know, revenue is dependent on people being able to show up to that uh, you know, physically. Um, so I'm sure uh, there are some museums uh, and organizations like those that are starting to crack the nut here, but I, I don't have clarity into that world. Um, and I'm with you that it's, it's tough. Brick and mortar businesses are getting hit like unbelievably hard right now. The, the other part of that question though, or, or maybe it was an un, unintended part of the question is talking about, you know, hybrid businesses, nonprofits. Um, and um, I, I know you're familiar with Muhammad Yunus's model of social business where, yeah. where um, you know, the business exists first and foremost to solve an environmental or social problem or challenge. And yep. that 100% of all net profits get rolled back into the business and roll back into creating that. And so if yeah. somebody would normally uh, donate a thousand dollars to a charity and they instead invest a thousand dollars in these companies, then they their 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 dollars have multiple lives, right? Because yeah. they keep and then at the end of the day, they can get the thousand dollars back and invest in something else if they want. So yeah. um, there's lots of hybrid models that aren't the, the straight, you know, uh, C corporation uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. model. Do you, want, do you want to speak to any of that? And, yeah, no, I, I just I completely agree. And it, you know, along these lines of the conversation around investment, I'm, there's a lot of talk about impact investing. I'm and I, I'm there's a lot of different definitions of it, and so we kind of stay out of that conversation because different people interpret it differently. But I, just along the lines of this conversation, what you just highlighted with a, you know, a social business, and as according to Muhammad Yunus, I'm, I, you know, the terminology I really prefer is legacy investing. Uh, which is to acknowledge two things. You know, one is that the, the money that you allocate out into the market or into the companies that you support or the organization you support, like you do want it to have a financial legacy, right? You do want it to be able to grow over time and be able to pass that on to your you know, family or your, your kids or the next generation. Um, but at the same rate, every dollar that we invest into the market Echoes. It has its own legacy, and that's in terms of the impact that it's going to have in the world. Um, and I think if we could, if we could start to think on those timeframes, which is kind of a theme of this conversation, right? Think about the legacy of you know the vote that your dollar is putting out there in the world. I, I, and, and be a little bit less short-term opportunistic. I then um, we'd see some really beautiful shifts. I. I, in terms of, uh, and I think that's Muhammad Yunus in a lot of ways, what he's talking about with the reinvestment of profits into the organization to be able to scale it, to be able to create more value and have more impact. I, I love that. Uh, you know, at, at a reasonable, uh, just as a confession, um, you know, we do have an investment fund, uh, but as, as an organization, we never raised investment. Um, and a big part of the reason, uh, at least from, from my perspective, was I, I wanted to be able to reinvest all the profits. I didn't want them to have to go out. I'm, I, you know, to uh, to uh, an outside investor. I wanted to be able to put it into the organization and the team and the mission uh, to be able to continuously improve and then scale the impact that we're trying to have in the world. So I, I, I love that model. Uh, we are that model as as a as an organization ourselves. And you know, of course, there's also there's B Corps. I am, and we're, we're a B Corp as well. Um, it's a benefit corporation. I'm, and what that acknowledges is I. Uh, 
it sounds really small, but it's pretty big in terms of the world of business, um, which is you have a equal part responsibility, not just to your shareholders, right? That fiduciary responsibility, but to all of your stakeholders. Your stakeholders include the environment, the communities you operate within. Yes, your investors, uh, but in, in equal measure, your team. I, and I, and it's, a legally, it's a legal structure for a company. And so as, as a B Corp, your bylaws are changed um, so that you, you have to take into account all stakeholders. And I think that that's an, it's another beautiful model um, in, a, in, a, in a different, but I, I think similar posture uh, towards what Muhammad Yunus is, uh, um, is building and, and has created multiple times. Yeah, I, that's a great point. And you made, you made a bunch of great points there. Um, and I do wanna, I wanna zero in on one of them. And you talked about legacy, right? Mm -hmm. And I think this is a really, this is kind of like the secret sauce, maybe. <laughs> yeah. You know, every, everybody wants to leave a legacy, right? But every single, you know, king, poet, you know, politician, movie star, you know, when history works its magic, the best you could ever hope for is a historic, be a historical footnote. You know, even the, even yeah. the great things we build, the, the pyramids and the, and the cathedrals we build are, are eventually going to be re reduced yeah. to dust. And so leaving a legacy from that point of view doesn't make much sense because it's, it's not going to last. Yeah. But there is a legacy that we can leave that not only will not decay, but will exponentially increase over time. And, and in every, every word action and, 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 uh, thought that we do ripples out, as you said, in multiple yeah. directions and takes off exponentially, right? And so where the world will be a hundred thousand years ago will be completely different than if, if you weren't around here. Your impact from being on this earth a hundred thousand years ago is, yeah. is profound. We are, each and every one of us is more powerful than we can imagine when we yeah. look at things from that scale. And so if you want to change the world, then then one of the th uh, some of the things you can do is think really hard about what products you buy, what yeah. services you, you do, what things you invest in, because all of that ripples out. And, you know, I know lots and lots of people and probably I might be in this category myself unknowingly who, you know, fight tooth and nail against a certain ill on the planet only to find out that some mutual fund I invested in is investing in the same company that's that's doing all this damage to the world yeah and so we, we we have to be we have to be knowledgeable and and Susanna um, made it made a comment before yeah. about about information right we're living you know I've heard people call it the post true post truth age right and uh, so it's kind of true though <laughs> yeah, it's kind of true um, so part of you know part we're very easily manipulated right now. Uh, yeah. And as consumers, as, as voters, as yeah. everything else. And so um, part of what unreasonable group is talking about is, you know, this radical openness and transparency, which I think is absolutely critical for this new human epoch that we're going into. It's absolutely critical to have openness and transparency to get our population to stabilize at an equilibrium within our planetary boundaries and not come crashing back down. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about how unreasonable, you know, is really promoting that? Yeah, I'm part of it is selfish too. And I just want, I want to say that because, uh, you know, er, earlier I mentioned that um, a lot of times people say being a CEO is the loneliest job um, out there, like loneliest job in the world. It's like, it's a common kind of quote. And I think part of the reason it's lonely is I, I am, we, we feel like we can't be fully honest or transparent, right? You have to hold things in and thereby carry them on your shoulders. Uh, and, and I think part of the reason why I, 
you know, we, we used to have a value. We called it militant transparency. That was one of our core values. It was a little bit too aggressive. Um, and the reason it was too aggressive is in practicality, um, it, it collided with people's desire to have like some personal uh, like confidentiality, right? If we, if, when we had militant transparency, we shared like everybody's salaries everywhere, anywhere in the world, anybody could see it. And some folks were like, hey, I'd like to have a little privacy. And so we said, okay. So our value now is, is in essence like radical candor. Um, I, what we refer to as no bullshit, but it means radical candor. I, and what I've found is that I, as an organization, it's a lot easier to actually go out in the world and say, hey, here's what we got wrong. Like, here's, here's what we need to work on. Here's where I've personally failed. Here's the setbacks that we're facing. I, yeah, here's, here's the challenges. And we didn't learn a lesson the first time. We're still struggling it with now, but, you know, hold me accountable uh, to kind of rise to that. Uh, but so, so part of it's selfish is it's just easier to live in a truthful world. Like it's just, uh, you don't have to remember what you said to people. You could, you know, you could kind of put it all out there. But I also think that there's so much distrust in the, in the world right now. Yeah. Un understandably so um, because so many things have been yeah, attempted to cover up. Uh, and I think that if we're going to bridge that divide to a, uh, a more trusting world, uh, we have to stop covering up, you know, our, our wounds, right? Yeah. I, and so my hope with Unreasonable is that we can play a part in in leading by example around just saying, hey, look, like you can still function, you can have a great company and it can even go better when you admit your flaws and your failures and your shortcomings. And I'm happy to go into any of those. Um, I, because if, if, if we don't do that, I, then I think we're going to have more and more distrust I, and more and more discord and more and more division. I'm so... It's a hard one. It's a hard one, though. That I, I am, I feel like do anything but you know try to lead by example. I'm, I yeah, as, as best we can and admit when we get it wrong. Yeah. So we have an opportunity, or we have a hard, you know, a challenge and a hardship, um, and we're paying a price. But we also have an opportunity, so we can get a benefit for the price that we're already paying. We're 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 all t having to take a little bit of a timeout because of COVID right now, yeah. but it's also a time for growth potentially. It's a time for re you know reflection on what's important to us, um, and you know right now in the in our current events right now when we don't get transparency and openness right and we don't get truthful co communications and candor right people yeah. die yeah. people are dying by the droves you know a thousand yeah. people a day or more in just in the u.s alone yeah. uh, and a lot of that is because uh people don't have the right information um, yeah. and and people are are going off you know not the best available data but going off opinions and 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 you know latest the latest uh, theories on, on that so uh, it's an opportunity for us to see the downside, I think, of the post-truth era uh, yeah. and and the importance of, of science and, <laughs> and you know, evidence-based decision-making and, and things like that. Uh, Luana Rubin had a good comment here uh, about radical candor. Um, and, you know, there's, there's some, uh, there's a double standard there when it comes, when it comes to oh. that. Um, which, which is another thing that we need to <laughs> work on quite a bit, right? Well, I, I agree with that comment. And actually, I think it's important. Um, it's part of the reason why I never give advice and just perspective because yeah, also my perspective comes from an extremely privileged place, right? I am, uh, 
I'm a white male born, well, actually born in Canada, but grew up in, in the United States. And, you know, I have an amazing family that I'm incredibly lucky uh, to have been supported by this entire time. It's easier for me to have that radical candor, right? I, because I, when I do that, I, I'm not, I, you know, the privileges I'm not thinking, are they going to say, oh, you're doing that? I'm, uh, because of the color of your skin or because of your gender or because of whatever it is. Um, people tend to, being a white male, take take these opinions more at face value and judge them just on the opinions. And so uh, I just wanted to call that out. Um, I agree with your comment. I think it's that much harder. I, I'm, if you're not, I, yeah, in essence, from such a position of privilege I, as I am. I, and it's also, I think, that much more inspiring I, um, for others to, um, take action. I'm when you are being, you know, able to be vulnerable, I am, and to be real about that. I, and not necessarily, um, be given societal permission to do that. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. You know, another aspect of, of Luana's comment is, you know, we've got some incredibly difficult challenges facing us as a, as a species, as a civilization, and, and I think the only way we're going to get through them is if we figure out a way to uh, input and, and uh, incorporate the creative minds of seven point whatever, 7.7 billion people on the planet. Right. Mm-hmm. And if we're if we're not listening to somebody because of, of their gender or what country they were born in or religion they are, or what color their skin is, we're selling ourselves short as a species because we, we need this is this is an all hands on deck uh, moment. And. You know, information, again, is, is a, a key part of it. And Susanna made another great comment. Um, oh, wait, that's, the, not the, that's not the one I was. That's a great comment, too. But this is the one I was looking for. <laughs> uh, you know, they, that corporations don't have to make their documents public and they won't be transparent about things such as uh, supply chains, you know, even if, uh, when it comes to masks. And again, it goes back to the force of a billion feathers. Right. If yeah. if if yeah. candor, if, if if what did you call it? Radical candor, yeah. Radical candor is not written into the DNA of your company. If that, if that is a if that is something that we as the consumers uh, demand of, of a company, uh, then yeah. those companies in this new human epoch are going to fail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agreed. 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 Through and through. All right. Let's see. We've got we've got a lot of uh, a lot of great comments. <laughs> So um, we are we are uh, coming up a little bit on, on getting close to the hour. Um, maybe we could take a break just to just to talk about how people can uh, learn more about Unreasonable. I know you're at at Unreasonable on on all the social media platforms and yeah. Unreasonable Unreasonable Group, I believe, is the website. UnreasonableGroup.com. Oh, UnreasonableGroup.com. You should, you should if you don't have that, that'd be a good. Uh, a, we should get that one. Yeah. 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 So that, that's a good one too. Yeah. Before, before somebody else does, especially if they're listening right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think like, like we said at the, at the top of this discussion, uh, business has an incredible uh, opportunity and gra- incredible ra- responsibility to help us navigate not only COVID-19, not only all the other crises yeah. that we're dealing with in 2020, but to, to lead us into this new human epoch, a, a new human epoch where, you know, 10 billion people, that's what I, I hear that the number is about 10 billion would be the equilibrium number. 10, 10 billion people can live in harmony on this planet, uh, yeah. within our planet planet's boundaries, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a peaceful, harmonious manner and with respect for each other and the planet. And um, uh, again, I think 
in order for this to be successful, uh, business will have to take a lead in that. And those business leaders that that are, are leading their companies with that charge uh, I, I are, are going to be the ones that, that are successful. If, if I'm wrong in that, then it's a pretty bleak future yeah. for us. We're, we're, we're not going towards the Star Trek future. We're going towards the, towards the Blade Runner future. Yeah. You know, it's not a good or, or, or 1984 or what, you know, whatever, whichever yeah. dystopia you want to, you want to look at. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I agree with, you know, this, this year, 2020 has just been an accelerant of uh, all the trends that, that already existed. Uh, and I think it's shown, you know, the cracks that exist and kind of turn them into canyons really quickly. I am, um, but like at the end of the day, nobody, nobody want, if we're talking about legacy, nobody wants to die and have written on their epitaph, maintain the status quo. Yeah. Like nobody wants that, <laughs> right. But I think 98% of us dedicate our life's work to that. Right. right? right. And, and so yeah, I challenge myself and kind of all of us is like, if we maintain the status quo as COVID has shown us, we're not going to survive as a species. Uh, and so, you know, what can we all do uh, in our own lives? to try to reorient the status quo in the right direction, right? Mm -hmm. And to your point, like it, it takes everybody. And that can be, yes, our behaviors as consumers. It could be how we vote. Uh, when we vote, it can be how we run our companies, if we're running companies, how we allocate our capital, if we're investing. Uh, it could be how we teach if we're teachers. I mean, it could be like, but I think we all have an opportunity. What we've seen with COVID is the status quo is unacceptable. Right. Um, and that I, we will not be able to survive, let alone thrive if we maintain it. So what can we do? kind of reoriented in the right direction. And that's, that's the moment that this is like our moment to define our legacy. Yeah. I, I think one of the, one of the main things that needs to become our, our mantra is that it doesn't work until it works for everybody. Right. Because, you know, we, we talked you talked about this before. We talked about it on our hike earlier this week that our political system is not broken. Our, our financial system is not broken. Our economy is not broken. It's working exactly the way it's supposed to. And yeah. it's working for a very select few. Yeah, it's working uh, how it's intended to. It's working how it's intended to. Yeah. But that, that the way it's working right now, I, the trajectory, if we want if we want to look at, project the trajectory out, uh, not very far in the future, yeah. it comes crashing back down and everybody loses. Everybody loses. Even the people that right now are doing very well, everybody loses. Yeah. The only way that it's going to work in the long term is if it works for everyone. Yeah. And so all those systems that, we've worked so hard all the status quo we've worked so hard to maintain the status quo yeah. a lot of it a lot of it needs to be dismantled and rebuilt um from the ground up um yeah. and without that we're in big trouble totally agree totally <laughs> agree. <laughs> i know that might sound i know that might sound unreasonable we need so. to stop being reasonable though That's <laughs> right? like you know the our, our name actually i didn't even explain that yeah um, but uh, unreasonable comes from a quote, uh, the Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw, who said that the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in adapting the world to himself. Therefore, all progress is dependent on the unreasonable person. Right. And if, so if all progress depends on unreasonable people, then we can't afford not to become unreasonable individuals ourselves. Like literally, it's the only reasonable thing to do because uh, we, we can't, we can't stay on this path. Right. We have to right. The direction that we're all moving in. I'm, and I'm with you. I'm a, uh, optimistic i know that we can i feel like in my core at least that we can you know, reorient in a way that is inclusive and is regenerative um but i uh, also know we can't do it fast enough and 
at this stage, one of our entrepreneurs, just one one quick story because she left a mark on me. Um, her name's uh, Jennifer Holgram. Her company's Lonza Tech. And there was something in the comments about carbon capture. Um, her oh. company um, captures carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide from steel mills and uh, oil refineries and converts it into ethanol, um, which can be converted into jet fuel. Uh, and so Virgin Atlantic now flies its commercial airliners on jet fuel that is made out of recycled carbon or pollution. It's an amazing company, huge. Each, each plant that they put up is the equivalent of taking 80,000 cars off the road every year. Uh, amazing business. I'm, I'm talking to Jennifer, I'm so excited about her work. And she said, look, the technology is there, it works. Uh, this is an effective solution, but at this stage in the game, winning slowly is the same thing as losing. Like we, we need to move quickly, right? And so this whole idea, I, there's an urgency uh, yeah, around, around everything that we're talking about as well. It's like, I'm an optimist, but I'm an impatient optimist. And I think more so than ever, I'm, you know, I'm introspecting on I, yeah, how I'm showing up I, in, in everything, not just in business, but in, in consumption and I, um, even in the conversations I'm having, because I think that I, yeah, the, moment, the time's now. And there's no such thing as they, there's just us. We all got to do it together. Um, and you obviously have that perspective <laughs> from an orbital view better than any of us, right? This is Spaceship Earth and we're all crew. That's, uh, and I think that's one of the most accurate analogies out there. Yeah, we got to take care of each other and we got we to take care of our ship. We have to mine, we have to mine the ship. Yeah. But um, no, no, that's a, that's a, a, a really great point uh, that you make. And, and the problem is, or one of the problems is, is that the entire playing field is stacked against that type of innovation. What it's stacked towards is maintaining the status quo because those, the people who are in power right now are in power because of the status quo. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, there's a huge disincentive for those people who actually make the decisions and are pulling the strings not to change anything. Mm -hmm. So, so that's, that's what we have to, that's what we're up against. And, and, and like you said, the only way we're going to overcome that is together. Yeah, it's like the political metaphor reach across the aisle, right? You know, for us, we're entrepreneur centric to a core, but we realize that to create the type of change that we want to see quick enough, we also have to work with the world's largest companies. I, mm -hmm. I, and you know, the biggest polluters in the world, we need to help them transition towards sustainable practices faster. Like we can't, we can't do it alone. Um, we can only do it together. I and I, but we need to do it quickly. I, yeah. Well, Daniel, thank you for well, thank you for taking the time to, to have this conversation. But th thank you also for, you know, all that you're doing to help the engine of enterprise do good in the world and to be a force for good and to be a restorative force and a regenerative force, as opposed to a destructive, exploitive force. And so. Uh, you know, by doing that, you're helping to, to, to make life as beautiful on our planet as it, as it looks from space. And so I, I just want to thank you for that. For everybody who's, who's I want to thank everybody who's tuned in, all the great comments. Uh, check out uh, unreasonablegroup.com and, and on all the social media uh, channels. And uh, any last words of advice for, for us fellow uh, COVID-19 uh, shelter-in-place uh, folks? Uh, I, no, I just. Oh just, no, I didn't, I didn't mean advice. Any last words of of uh, perspective? <laughs> right. <laughs> I just say no, no, no. My, my final words are just gratitude. I I know that everybody's most valuable commodity right now is their time, and uh, you know, Ron, extremely grateful to you. Yeah, just for the opportunity to share this conversation, and I'm just delighted that you've moved out to Colorado. And for everybody who tuned in, I'm you know, grateful that uh, you lent us your 
your ears and your eyes and hopefully your minds and hearts uh, for this last hour. But it was, it was a real pleasure. All right. Th thank you so much, Daniel. And, and thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Cheers. Thank you for joining us during this conversation from the orbital perspective. And thank you for being a part of an emerging unity on our planet. We are strongest when we are aligned around the truth of our underlying unity. Together, we are unstoppable and can build a positive, restorative future, a future that we would all want to be a part of. Please subscribe to the Orbital Perspective podcast and follow us on social media. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you will do to help make life on our planet as beautiful as it looks from space. <laughs>